All right. Hello, everyone. This is Friday Night at the Barbell with your host, myself, Carson, Josh, and Bryant. Today, we have a really awesome guest here. I'll let Bryant introduce as he does the great introductions. So, so today we've got Ronald, Sir Jim Rat Fitness Tarvin with us, world-class powerlifter, great coach, a local Alabama guy out of Montgomery, Millbrook area, and a lot more than just coaching. He's got all the stories in the world and all the experience just in athletics alone. So, Ronald, tell the people hello, and we'll get started with any questions we have, which is a lot. <laughs> I appreciate you guys having me. Um, I'm not the greatest in front of a mic, but we're going to try to be relatively clear. If I stop a little bit, worry about it. Yeah, we'll, yeah, y'all ask away. We'll cut it out. Don't worry. That's cool. We'll, we'll cut any, any, ums, any ums, any ums. I'm going make you sound real nice. He does with me. So we always start with a controversial question. And for you, I want to know, does pineapple belong on pizza? Yes. I'm, that is controversial. That's my favorite. That's my favorite. So you're family. Um, you put your favorite fruit on a pizza. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm a big I'm a pineapple guy too. I know a lot of people are very opinionated about this, but <laughs> I love some. It, it gives a nice the so it gives a nice contrast to the savory of the pizza. Mm-hmm. It's like a salty, sweet, salty. salty. Yeah, you get yeah. the sweet in there too. I'm not gonna put it. I'm not gonna put it. Yeah, fifty-fifty here. Yeah, right yes. No, I, I have. I too have tried it, and I think Heat Pizza actually has a buffalo chicken and pineapple pizza. It didn't say it on the menu one time when I ordered it, and it came out, and there's, like, pineapple all over it. Oh, a buffalo chicken pizza, and I was like, what the fuck is this shit? No one told me. I felt gaslighted without knowing anything about this pizza. So you eat it? Yeah, I ate it. Nice. It was on the table. Yeah. What am I, send it back? Hey, take this fucking pineapple off, you fucking animals. At least, I, I think I did be, I think I did say, like, hey, uh, it doesn't say on the menu this has pineapple on it. They're, oh, yeah, it's new. Tell me. Tell me that I'm ordering this. Not everybody wants pineapple on it. Well, two to two. That's fair. Two, two, four, two against. Oh, man. You're wrong. I mean, I've been wrong before, and I stand by that I'm correct in this situation. <laughs> there's, there's no way I would back off because it's fucking disgusting. I'm not a fruit or vegetable guy, though, so that might be part of it, too. I don't really like to mix, you know. I like to keep things traditional, if you will, separate. I have some other ones too. I, tempted to hold it. Oh yeah, <laughs> I went. I went down. I went down one night and like Google controversial questions, mm-hmm. controversial debate questions. I asked other people. That's how I got the straw one. I asked other people <laughs> that I know, and they were the last one we asked the guy Mark. We asked him, uh, "Does a straw have one or two holes?" And he started. He started his answer with with quoting his class from engineering school. And he was yeah. like, "Oh well, I took differential geometry, and we actually talked a little bit about this in that class." And I was just like, "What the fuck? <laughs> I, I can't argue that. No way." So when you're talking about different axioms and different, which <laughs> shout out Mark, you're way smarter than me. But that was really funny. It was so there one right. <laughs> His answer was one. Okay. That's right. That's right. And then some other people I talked to about that, uh, there's a whole group of people I'm friends with from the internet, but they've had the same conversation before. And their opinion on it was, if if a straw has one hole, then so does the human body. Your mouth and your anus are the same hole at that point. And I was like, that's pretty tough yeah, when you put it that way. You get in the murky water there, literally. Anyways, when they said that, I was just like, oh, I did not think of it that way. <laughs> But you're not wrong, but not right either. Fuck that. <laughs> God, such a good one. Do you want to start with Josh's questions? You had a lot. I did have a lot. I had a couple from Instagram. People dropped me, like Anthony Foster, who said, how does it feel to be the first person of color on the podcast? <laughs> Which I'm sure feels just awesome. You know, finally, it feels pretty damn good. Finally, it's one of these Getting off the back of the bus. <laughs> that was good. I, I feel like it was a good one. It was terrible, but it was, 
I know you got you bucked up third on the yeah. Um, so was it like competing in a meet with other elite level like top influencer powerlifters like Blake Lehew, Don Hack, and Jamal? But what's the energy around that meet versus like a local league? So that particular meet, I don't think Blake actually did that meet. I don't think that was the one that he did. Jamal was there, Hack was there. I guess some of some of the big names are there. So Joe, Joe Sullivan, Chad Penson on the male side, Grigsby was there. Um, on the female side, Chrissy Hawkins, uh, Brianna Terry, Tamara Walcott, she broke the, I think I was the biggest female deadlift of all time yep. in any weight class at that meet. But the names were just, it was insane. And that, that wasn't the first, I guess, star-studded lineup that I've been a part of, but it, it never gets old. I've done a lot of meets like that, invitational meets with some of the biggest legends of all time in the sport. And that, the energy in the room, it's crazy, man. Everybody is is hype for everybody. You would think you're at a local meet, man. The the top of the top are actually really supportive. Mm-hmm. And I tell people this all the time. It's these mediocre motherfuckers that that, that like to talk a lot of nonsense mm-hmm. and think they run things. But the best of the best, they're they're extremely welcoming, and we all have a good time during the meet. And the post meet parties are legendary. I've heard a couple of words be thrown around yeah. about those. You big know what? I don't want me get into all of that because I haven't taken part in some of the things that y'all are <laughs> talking about. But uh, you know, being friends with some of the people that that take place in some of that stuff, I've heard some stories. Yeah, yeah. I've heard stories, but no confirmations. Yeah. Which well, maybe to be fair, I've heard these same stories after a lot of these big meets. So I'm just gonna go ahead on record and say this stuff probably happens. <laughs> I don't have any doubts anymore. I can probably, I may get a message after I share this. But yeah, this this kind of stuff like that. Yeah, if you ever hear about the big orgies that come after the big meets, we can assume they're true. <laughs> big meat orgies. You know, there's a lot of meat at those oh, meat yeah. city. You know what I mean? Just in general. That's like you got you got some meaty one sixty five women and then jacked one ninety eight to two seventy five men. I imagine there's a lot of beef being thrown around. <laughs> all all the halo has to go somewhere. The halo intent. Uh, room definitely radio. <laughs> Something's in the air. You might say. How many meets have you actually competed at? Uh, the meet I did two weeks ago was number 28. 28. Still doing the dance thing. Started the first meet was my first sanctioned meet was in November of 2014. I did seven meets in my first 14 months, which looking back on it now was the stupidest thing. Holy Think about it though, was I was still making progress. Yeah. Like I was, my total was going up meet to meet, but I was having so much yeah. fun that I probably felt like shit. To be honest with you, I didn't. Yeah. I was, I was really? 25 at the time. I'm 34 now, but. Probably didn't know how to like really peak your body at the time either. You were just like, I think I, it was still getting stronger each time. Yeah, but, it, it just kind yeah. of turned into a heavy training thing. Yeah, exactly. At the time, what I was doing was, and I don't know where I got this from, but what I would do was I would take the entire week of meat off. I wouldn't do shit. So I wouldn't go to the gym. I wouldn't train. I wouldn't do cardio. I would take the entire week off. Old school. Go to meet on Saturday. Some people still do that. Mm-hmm. Go to meet on a Saturday, hit a PR total, and go pig out after, which started again going to what we were talking about a little bit before we got on there i would do that after weigh-ins i would go yeah. to the buffet and just eat all the greasy shit those yeah. mm-hmm. weigh i was still i was cutting weight to make 165 at the time so looking back on it if i knew then what i know now i probably would have had even better days um but yeah i ate some just terrible stuff mm-hmm. the day before these <laughs> you know i think I would estimate 99% of people go and eat something terrible before meets. Yes, they do. Yeah. I just, I put it like this. The the people that don't have coaches, I would say absolutely. Um, most good coaches tend to kind of advise their lifters to stay away from anything that they, now if you eat like shit during training, then yeah, eat shit before you, yeah, exactly. you know, before yeah. you compete. Don't try to eat healthy now. But mm-hmm. For the most part, kind of try to stick to what most people eat before training, your beef and rice that kind of stuff. So if, if it's not something that you have that you've had regularly during your prep, then you probably shouldn't have it the day of or the day before you compete. Yeah. Yep. It would be I think that's probably the normal recommendation now is like just do what you normally do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Don't go outside of it. If you normally eat like a pig, probably keep eating like a pig. You're probably gonna feel like shit one way or the other. That day. So if it is broke, also don't fix it. Not the day of. Fix it later. So I got a question. So the Ronald's starting because your background, 
which I was listening. I listened to another podcast you did back. I think it was April. Or so, but you were kind of talking about your beginning. So you were a college athlete. You played baseball, and then you actually kind of got into CrossFit first, right? Um, smaller guy at the time. So kind of how how did that progression go as far as kind of going from there into powerlifting? So when I started, talking back to to college, um, I did play college baseball for four years at. Um, well, I played two years at a junior college, the Bishop State down in Mobile, where I'm from. After my sophomore year, I transferred up to Faulkner University in Montgomery, where I was for three years, played two years, including them, and then I had a redshirt year because of an injury. But um, after that, after all my pro ball aspirations were kind of tanked after a couple injuries, I needed something to stay active, stay competitive. And I actually saw a guy who was wearing a CrossFit the name of the gym at the time was CrossFit 202Q, which actually still exists in Montgomery now. But he wore a shirt into the, the campus rec center, and I asked him, you know, kind of what that was. And I started looking it up online, and I saw the – there was, like, 2011 CrossFit Games. I was like, this shit was cool as fuck. Yep. It was, like, competitive lifting, and all the guys guys and girls were jacked. So I was like, okay, cool. Where is this at? There happened to be a place roughly five minutes from where the school was. So I was going down there and I was, granted, I was 22 at the time. And I don't know if y'all know anything about CrossFit, but it's fucking expensive. It's like $125, $150 a month. That's um, Always has been. Yeah. And I could not afford that. But on Saturdays, they have these like open community workouts where if anybody wants to come just do a workout for free and kind of test it out, you're more than welcome. Well, I was doing that every Saturday for months before I was able to actually join. Mm-hmm. So I did that for roughly two and a half years, did a few competitions, had a good time. I just, I hated the conditioning aspect of it. I hated running, hated rowing, hated all that stuff. But I was always that, like I was terrible at the gymnastics stuff. I wasn't great at the conditioning stuff, but I was always the the insanely strong, small guy. It's like 165 pounds, shredded to the gills. Um, but a 500 pound deadlift as a crossfitter at 165 pounds at the time, was it was insane. It was crazy. Yeah. So I actually found powerlifting through CrossFit. I didn't know what a deadlift was until I started doing CrossFit. Mm. I had an injury. I was actually trying to to demonstrate, I don't know if y'all know what butterfly pull-ups are, Mm whether the excessive kipping gymnastic Mm -hmm. style pull-ups. I was trying to demonstrate that to a class that had come in and I recall tearing my tricep, my teres, and my lat all at the same time. As I'm on the bar. And there's eyes watching me do this, and I feel just this burning lightning bolt just go, just go from my tricep down my side. And I'm thinking to myself, oh shit, I just fucked something up. But I continue because I didn't want to like a punk and Well, I go get it checked out, and I find out that's what it is. I can do nothing upper body related. So I start squatting four days a week. My squat explodes. I squat over 400 for the first time. And then shortly after that, I decide I don't want to do this shit anymore. I just want to lift heavy. Either of y'all know anything about Rabdo? Mm-hmm. So, oh my God. we were just talking about Rabdo earlier. Yeah. yeah, May of 2014. I was sleeping maybe three hours a night. I was working two jobs. I was bodybuilding and doing CrossFit all at the same time. While also donating plasma twice a week because I was broke and I was trying to make a little extra money. And with the heads. Didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. Um, after a just an all-out arm workout, for like three days, I couldn't move my arms. Arms are locked up, super sensitive to the touch. Everybody's poking my arms, thinking it's funny. I'm thinking to myself, I just got this extreme pump that just lasts me. One evening at like seven o'clock, I go to the bathroom. Water is coffee black. So again, I'm thinking nothing of it. I'm 25, I'm invincible at the time. I'm thinking I had like three energy drinks a day. Something's fine, everything's fine or whatever. At midnight, roughly maybe a little bit before midnight, I go to the bathroom again and the girl that I was seeing at the time she was like, you should probably go to the hospital. I like, no, I'll go in the morning. She was like, no, you should probably go now. So I go to the hospital, go to the PR. And the guy comes back. He's like, well, what brings you here? And I said, I think I have rapto. He goes, well, what, what makes you think that I said? I looked up all the symptoms and I have all the symptoms. He goes, no, 99% of the time when people tell me they look up the symptoms, chances are they're wrong. He walks out of the room, comes back. He goes, well, you were right. <laughs> I was like, cool. So... When I got out of here, he said, oh, you ain't going anywhere for a yeah. while. So I ended up in ICU for six days. Um, I lost like 11 pounds while I was in there. And 
he actually told me, he said that if I had waited until the morning to come in, that I was going to be a dialysis patient for the rest of my life. Kidney. I would have lost my kidney and would not be able to do anything close to what I'm doing now ever yeah. again. So, shout out to the young lady I was seeing. But after I got out of the hospital, like I said, I lost like 11 pounds and I just decided, well, I'm already leaving. Anyway, let me pray for a body pump. <laughs> Meathead so, mentality. Nine weeks later, and I actually have the 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 transformation from me being in a hospital bed with wires and tubes stacked up to me to me being just diced on stage. Um, it was. I look back on it now, and I'm 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 inspired, but still thinking to myself, this was really stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, decided I never want to do a bodybuilding show again. I like to eat too much. I hate cardio too much. Just didn't want to do that. Did a local powerlifting meet maybe six weeks after that. At a uh, commercial gym, tell me, man, I was young and stupid. <laughs> that's that's pretty with it. Crazy transition too, though, going from baseball straight into CrossFit, straight into bodybuilding after injury, rhabdo. injury yeah. and rhabdo, yeah. straight into powerlifting. Yeah. No, no rest at all. Yeah. yeah, and for people that don't know, rhabdomyolysis is a breakdown of muscle tissue that releases damaged proteins into the blood, and normally releases myoglobin into the blood, which can damage and kill your kidneys so yeah Um, it's life-threatening yeah i'm a nurse i work at the local hospital here in tuscaloosa and we see that a lot we it's rarely seen with like athletes that come in most of the time it's like older people that are found like down in their home for like three days because they broke their hip and then they go under rhabdo but yeah it can get really serious just like i was saying you know some people end up on dialysis right that was not the case just a symptom of like extreme overtraining like it's very yeah. rare in athletes because it takes a lot to actually mm-hmm. do that yeah i think it was so it was extreme overtraining terrible amounts of sleep no recovery the extreme dehydration mm-hmm. of like i said donating plasma twice a week too so yeah. uh if it didn't happen then it was gonna probably happen at some point yes yeah, for sure gotten some kind of i hit the lotto or something yeah started making more money but how yeah. how far removed from your uh torn tricep and everything was that so I want to say that happened during, it was right before the CrossFit Open started early 2014. So that's at the first part of the year. So I want to say that was like February, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. And then, like I said, May was when the Raptor incident happened. I went to the hospital. I went in the hospital. It was around my dad's birthday, May 4th. Um, like I said, I, I recall being there for, for six days. Didn't tell my parents about it until maybe day four. And they were pissed. Yeah, bet. Now, granted, I don't have any family that lives in the city that I live in. All my family's not in Mobile, but yeah, they were pissed because obviously they they wanted to support, but I just didn't want to hear the mm-hmm. oh, I told you so. Oh, yeah, all yeah. this mm-hmm. this crazy training is going to get you hurt, you yep. in trouble, and yep. all this other stuff. I just didn't want to hear all that. And uh, but yeah, they they weren't too happy about it. Yeah, after the fact. I can see that. I know back then in 2011, really probably 2009 to 2015 was the crossfit boom per se yeah like 2011 was if you were watching espn you saw the crossfit games and it got a lot of people off the couch mm-hmm. and i bet rabdo went up i bet there's yeah. a nice spike in rabdo she had never never gone to the gym never mm-hmm. lift touched the weight and she went into like a kind of like an open gym kind of like something that you're talking about yeah and um she did a crossfit workout for like 45 minutes and the next day, she said she woke up and could not move out of bed. She had to call an ambulance to come get her. And she was in rabdo. Had to go in the hospital for a few days. But but it did, on the flip side, get a lot of people. I I also did it probably in 2013 or 14. Mm-hmm. And um, probably like three, three straight months or so for the same reason. Yeah. Like graduated, stopped playing basketball, didn't have anything competitive to do. And CrossFit was like the only thing you saw – lifting wise that was competitive you kind of knew about bodybuilding back then but it's like mm-hmm. i don't really know how to do bodybuilding but crossfit you just walk to a gym and they hand you a barbell so right very uh attainable or tangible so yeah yeah they do i mean they do good workouts like they yeah. actually do they're they can scale literally everything but the environment makes you want to do more than you can and they allow that by their kipping pull-ups or they don't really teach the olympic lifts that very very well so right it's almost like high school level coaching. So you kind of move, move weight overhead. So like a lot of people can go in and like throw a lot more weight than they can actually do. And that's how 
people end up mm-hmm. with torn lats, triceps, and tears. You say it's, it's not yes, one hundred percent more more than it's hurt. Yeah, for sure. So going back to you know the baseball to CrossFit the bodybuilding now to powerlifting. So how is the knowledge from baseball and bodybuilding transferred to you to you being a successful powerlifter and a successful so having been somebody who's been an athlete since I was three, I played sports year round. I was basketball, baseball, football all the way up until I got to high school where I just decided to specialize in baseball. I had a heavy work ethic instilled in me from my parents, especially my my pops who's worked two or three jobs for a lot of his life to to help support myself and my two sisters and my mom. So honestly, a lot of the values as far as, you know, work ethic and, and, you know, staying on task and taking things seriously at all times, not taking things for granted. I try to honestly lead that by example when it comes to passing that down to my lifters, because I do have a lot of lifters that will come to me initially kind of just going through the motions, going to the gym and not doing things to you know, their full potential because it's not a lift that they enjoy and stuff like that. Asking specifically to not have to do certain lifts because they they don't find it fun or it's not something that they want to do. You know, just kind of, you know, letting them know that you're going to have to do things that you don't necessarily enjoy doing if you want to progress. And honestly, if you're in powerlifting and you expect this to be fun all the time, you're in the wrong sport. This Mm -hmm. is a monotonous sport. There's three lifts for a reason. You get better at squat, bench, and deadlift by squat, bench, and deadlift. And there's not, you know, you can throw all the accessories and variations and stuff at, at lifters. But ultimately, you know, if you're not proficient at the actual main three movements, I don't care how much you, you know, reverse band such and such or what you dog squat or what, all this other stuff, yeah. you know, not to go off on a tangent. But if you can't transfer these specific movements to the actual comp lifts on the platform, it's pretty irrelevant. Once you compete, now, if you're if you're not competing, you're just training for... Um, enjoyment that's one thing but once you step on the platform one time the only thing that really matters is what you do on the platform yeah. I think uh, I would agree I want to know kind of transitioning from that who were your influences in your style of coaching like who influenced you to coach the way that you do because so, you said you coach and you told me earlier you have around 40 athletes roughly yeah what's so, the person so yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a lot of athletes yeah. and everyone's individual to an extent, but like you said, squat bench deadlift what we're trying to get best at. Mm-hmm. It's going to be pretty specific most of the time. And who kind of influenced you to take the, that direction? Yeah. So the very first coach I had was the 2016 Chad Wesley Smith and the juggernaut training principles, the scientific principles of training training was the methodologies that he followed. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot from him. And after my time working specifically with him, I did a lot of studying the stuff that he wrote. I watched every seminar that he had on uh, on YouTube at the time. He was, he and Brandon Lilly at the time, who was the founder of the Cube Method, yeah. those were two of the more popular programming methodologies around at the time. There was, I think Fitset was around at the time too, with a uh, sweet burns but the the juggernaut principles is where i got a lot of my coaching styles from and i've done a lot of adapting that to specific lifters and just kind of putting my own spin on it i don't necessarily say i have a specific programming style now i do have a lot of the same key principles but like you said obviously you gotta you gotta tailor things to what the needs are the, the individual athlete and i'm still learning i've been coaching since 20 late 2015 is when i kind of really dove into it full force and like I said, I, I still don't claim to to know everything. I'm consistently trying to learn. I'm always researching something, always listening to some sort of podcast, always trying to soak in other information from from other sources. So I'm I'm constantly trying to progress. Yeah. Just just as I am as a lifter. So always trying to get a little better. I think you're in the perfect time, you know, because back then with Chad Wesley Smith and Brandon Lilly and Mark Ripito. Dave Tate, all those guys, like the methodologies they came out with were very old school. I think Chad Wesley Smith was on the cutting edge of things back then, but now like information is so easy to get. Yeah. You can and there's so many people that are researching this stuff and and applying it and seeing what works and what doesn't outside of clinical research. So now you can also combine older principles from Chad Wesley Smith with newer stuff that comes out as it comes. So but there's no better time than now to be a power lifter. Right. So there's just so much stuff that is out there that has been revised or improved upon 
or figured out this variation won't work for raw lifters because of the way it worked for geared lifters back then, like a box squat, for instance. Like yeah. Nobody box squats anymore for a reason. But it's a pretty fun time to be a coach yeah. because mm-hmm. there's so many different ways. I said it earlier, too, but there's so many ways to skin a cat, and, and that applies in coaching, that applies in lifting, and that applies in life as well. But just to be able to mix all the methodologies together whenever you get something new and you're able to say, does this actually work? Let's try it. And you might have the perfect guinea pig for it. Or you might figure out myself that too. I'm my own science. Yeah, you got to. <laughs> so, it's it's hard to give someone something that you've never done. I don't feel good you about it. Yeah, right. That I've never tried. And people realize it too. Yeah. And to see someone else struggle with something you haven't tried yet is pretty tough. Yeah. I wanted to uh, piggyback off what y'all were saying. So I was in the other podcast you did with Don. I heard you mention um, if a, your lifter does very well, you give them all the credit. Um, but if your lifter doesn't do well, you kind of take that personally and you, you take responsibility for that. I think that speaks a lot to how you are as a coach, but also to your character as a person. So in saying that, so what would be like more satisfying or fulfilling to you? Like seeing one of your athletes hit a big goal that they've been wanting to for a while, say like a total of however much, or going to a big meet yourself and like hitting a big goal that you've had. Oh, that's like close. It's, it's, it's always going to be my athlete accomplished, yeah. accomplished something that they, cool. they've been wanting or didn't think was possible. I, I say this, I've said this numerous times. I'm, I'm 34. I've got, you know, probably four or five years where I feel like I can consistently kind of stay near the top of the game, but I can be a great coach and continue to improve until I decide I want to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. I think the powerlifting thing is going to be more so, if I were to continue, I feel like it would be my body will tell me when it's time to, to kind of let it go or back off. But realistically, as far as a coaching standpoint, I can continue to get better at that and do that at an elite level as long as I choose to. So I take a lot of pride in, in my lifters progress and like you said I take it personally when mm-hmm. they don't do well that's also one of the reasons why I try not to really compete at the same meets my lifters are doing because I give a hundred and percent of myself yeah. physically emotionally to my lifters and I'm extremely invested in their progress so if they have a good day like you said it's on them I want to lurk in the shadows um I don't want the glory enough if they want to commend me or something like that on a you know on a social media post or something cool I appreciate it but I don't do this for you know, that kind of recognition. But at the same time, like you said, if they don't have a, a good meet, it's something that I could have done better. True enough, they may have been able to show up some things outside of training that I have nothing to do with, sleep, nutrition, all that kind of stuff. But for the most part, I'm going to take the, the brunt of the blame for it. Yeah. I think that's the best way to be. Yeah. I think that's kind of how the best coaches over time have mm-hmm. been in all sports. So if the team does well, the team did well. That's right. If yeah. the team does bad, I didn't get them prepared. Yeah. That's kind of how, probably how it should be. So, how do you think the sport of powerlifting has evolved over the past decade? Considering I've been in the sport almost a decade now, this is year nine. That's a really good question. So, I'll put it like this. In 20, let's see, 2014, when I did my first meet at 165, I think my first total was like 1370 something. And so, at that time, that was, that was top 25 on the planet at the mm-hmm. time. You got 16-year-olds mm-hmm. in that same weight class now, putting up those kind of numbers. The I'll keep it in perspective with that weight class specifically. In 2017, my best total period at 165 or 75 keys was 1592. And at the time, that was 17 pounds off the all-time world record. You got juniors now mm-hmm. that are doing that yeah. and then some. So and in some cases there's probably nineteen year olds, some teens that are doing these ridiculous yeah. things. So the talent pool is it's exploding. You got a lot of kids now coming from high school looking to to powerlift after high school and not just not just looking to go to college to play football, basketball, baseball and stuff like that. You know, there are potential continuous education opportunities via scholarships now with powerlifting. Not to mention a lot of competitive avenues. There's collegiate nationals and multiple federations. There's just a lot of ways that people can get into the sport. And now you're seeing these these genetic freaks come from, you know, they play college football for two years, decide they don't want to play football anymore. Now you got this freaking nature running back that's been training in his shed with 30 inch quads that squatting 700 pounds as a, you know, as a 22 year old running back. It's just 
the talent pool is just continuing to explode as the the sport continues to get more exposure. And I mean, five years from now, it's going to be what we see now is the tip of the iceberg, in my opinion. I think there's going to be some numbers that we think are unfathomable, unfathomable now that are going to be just blown away. Just like numbers that are being hit now five years ago, we didn't think were were possible. You see people under 200 pounds, like Chad, for instance, just as a, a name drop, Chad Benson's probably going to squat a grand around 220. Yeah. I say that that's, that's just somebody that I know personally. I'm not going to drop many names, but he's just, he's one of those guys that I've known for a while that is just absolutely defying what anybody should be perceiving as possible, in mm-hmm. my opinion. The, the thought of even standing that weight up, let alone, you mm-hmm. know, going down and squatting it. And I think, so the first person that actually tried that, Yuri Belkin tried that at Big Dogs like three years ago. Mm-hmm. He actually attempted to squat 1,003 at like two, like 225 pounds. Scariest thing I'd ever seen in my life. He stood it up. <laughs> they moved the mono hooks. He put it back down. <laughs> he was like, no, this is I want to fail it. I want to fail it. Uh, was the, he was the lightest guy in that meet about probably well over 100 pounds, and he still plays top three at that meet. <laughs> a lot of people don't know the uh, like some of the OG, what I would consider goats of the sport. Before Hack, there was Yuri as the, the mm-hmm. unbeatable kind of the, you know, if this guy signs up for me, you already know if you're doing that meet, you're playing for second place. It's, it's, if Hack signs up for me, you mm-hmm. can kind of go ahead and chalk it up to we're playing for second place. Yeah, yeah. And I think so. That was the going back to the showdown. That was the that was the first meet that probably actually only meet that I've done that he was in. But the uh, twenty sixteen boss of bosses getting to compete with uh, with Yuri personally and Dan Green, who was the uh, the the person. He was the reason that I got into the sport. Dan was that guy that just he kind of broke the mold of at the time powerlifters being just thought of as just really big burly guys that were. They go in and do singles and doubles, and they go to a buffet. Mm-hmm. That was kind of what it was talking to be. He was kind of this guy that was this off-season bodybuilder build that was the strongest guy on the planet in his weight class at the time. If you'd given him six weeks, he could have stepped on a bodybuilder stage and yeah. probably mm-hmm. wrecked the light of weights. So getting to compete with him at his meet in, uh, in 2016, it was uh, going back to what I was talking about with one of the most insane lineups. To this day, Dan Green, Kevin Oak, Yuri Belkin, T. Cummins, back to back to back to back in the same flight. Larry Wheels was at that meet. That's Steffi Cohen was at that meet. Malik Durstein, Richard Hawthorne, Brandon Franklin, Brandon Lilly. Like that entire meet was just that loaded with stuff. All Yeah, so that, a lot of those names now, you ask a lot of the people that are in the sport or just got into the sport in the last three years, they have, they've never heard of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Oh, yeah. It's funny, those and OGs now. Yeah. So, and I try to, I try to tell you know, some of the younger lifters at my gym and then some that I coach that, hey, if you haven't been in the game for for more than the three years that you've been in, you really, truly don't know shit. Soak up everything that you can and honestly try to, you know, honor and appreciate the people that came before you. Like, the methodologies now and the progress that people are making now, it's it's an astronomical race because, like I said, there's just so much, you know, readily available information out there, but... You know, the people that did it before the people that are getting to the sport in the last three years, I think they don't get the credit and appreciation that they they deserve. And that's why I like people like Eric Lillibridge, who are coming kind of back out of retirement, has me so fired up. Yeah. I feel like the current generation needs to see what somebody like Lillibridge was capable of mm-hmm. at his peak. So seeing him doing reps at eight, nine hundred plus in the end, it, should, it, it, it gets me fired up. And it's going to be his his comeback is going to be really, really mm-hmm. good. Yeah. It seems like it's already trending that way just to kind of tag along with that like i think in any sport there's always that oh well this will never be surpassed mm-hmm. this record will never be broken and we're just now seeing that in powerlifting one because it was so niche then and now like you said the talent pool is bigger the talent pool is bigger because there's now there's money in it i'm mm-hmm. sure there was less there was probably negative dollars in it when you started and then two you got social media that you can fall back on. If you're not making money actually lifting, you can get strong, compete, and then fall back on social media to make your money. So even if you think about it, it's like uh, something that's been around since like the beginning of humans running. It wasn't until 1954 with Roger Bannister that they finally broke the four-minute mile. No one thought it could be done until after that. So now we're finding, this is like our four-minute mile in powerlifting. Everyone's finally like, oh, well, we got 18-year-old squatting 700 at 165. 
raw. It's kind of like, oh, well, maybe there is no limit. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, when's yeah. somebody going to squat a grand under 300 pounds or 275? <clears throat> Chad Benson. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, and, and two, with, you know, like you're saying, you've got so much more information now and the science back data and the best way to do things. But you also have, since we're becoming, it's becoming more mainstream, especially with like TikTok and Instagram and everybody posting their like heavy lifts. Now you're having these like outliers, these kids that, you know, are just freaks. Yeah, just freaks of nature. You know, like the, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy that competed at Worlds and I believe it was 220. He was a junior or a teenager. The mustache. Yeah, yeah, and he lifted in a storage shed. Like he worked out, he had like a, he had a, uh, like a rack in a storage building and he that's all I did was like lift and then he I think he pulled like over 700 pounds he's like 18 or 19 years well old. I know there was a junior probably around that weight class that came in at I thought he was less than 220 but he came in and ended up benching a world record out of nowhere and he like opened with 402 and ended up benching like 470 as a junior in under 220. And yeah, that was the crazy thing. He took massive jumps. No one expected him to do as much as he did. And it was just like out of nowhere, this kid, it, he was like, it didn't even look like he knew that he was about to do that. It was like literally out of nowhere. But you have like McVeigh, who you mentioned, McVeigh Stockwell. I mean, he's a 165er that's got a 15, 26 total at 19 years old. That's one of the kids that trained at the Marius. The Marius is guy, yep. Talking about like, oh, people will never think this will be done. If you like look at the equip side of powerlifting with the king of the equip powerlifting with Dave Hall, total was 31 of the three. Who would have ever thought that? Somebody totaled 30,000 pounds. I think he said over three grand three times, three or four yeah. times. And then he, he does the one meet a year, he'll do the WPO, and then he'll do a PR in that meet. I think at that point you're going to have to wait. For a whole year before yeah, set a PR total, yeah. but we're gonna see, we're gonna see that wrong eventually. If it's not, if it's not Jesus, it'll be someone else. I think realistically, he's capable. Of, I miss careers all said and done. I guess T twenty eight. I must T three K. I'm not gonna say three K will never happen because I've seen a lot of stuff. I could see him finishing his career twenty nine. Do I think 3K will happen at some point raw? Probably, but I don't think it'll be by somebody who's like sub 450, mm-hmm. if we're being honest about it. But then at that point, it's like, where do leverages start to no longer help you, as, mm-hmm. as a, especially as a really big squatter? Where do um, leverages kind of start to get in the way of you, especially when it comes to hitting depth as, mm-hmm. as a yeah. big guy? It's already kind of hard to tell when you're a bigger lifter anyway. Um, yeah. At some point, there's going to be kind of some diminishing returns with that. He's like, yeah, I know. He's just <laughs> staring directly into my eyes. Uh, yeah, I think it seems like there is no limit to his potential even now, even though he's already squatted a thousand pounds raw. So I don't know. We'll see. I I do agree. I think twenty eight hundred is probably a safe bet. To be honest, like I would I would bet on that right now. I think what you have to do though, cause the with the way the current competition season is for him. He's doing like three meets a year and they're kind of all close together with yeah. like the Sheffield and Worlds and stuff like that. So I would think it would have to be one of those years where he just, he takes a full year off. I don't yeah. think he's going to be able to progress to that level while still peaking and competing three times a year, doing all this heavy travel overseas yeah. to do these international meets and stuff. I think he's capable. I just, I don't see it happening if he competes at that Especially as you reach your peak, like what you can attain as a human being once you reach, once you get close to that level, it's like so hard to make progress. Yeah, for sure. It's like the, you know, very steep curve. That's like, I mean, that's like most people, I think, in the gym, when you're not someone that only competes, like that's your only thing. You go to the gym, you go home and recover, you go back to the gym, you recover. If you're not doing just that, you're pretty much always fighting for like two and a half, five kilo PRs mm-hmm. whenever you can get them. If it's seven months, one year, mm-hmm. two months, whatever. When, it, when it's not your sole income or living, you kind of have to fight for that anyways. So it would make sense once he gets to that point where things are slowing down a lot. Maybe he hops over to a different Fed. He was. I was then I had started my job yet last year, and not after I graduated, all I was doing was bouncing four or five nights a week, sleeping all day long, and going to the gym. That was the best recovery I've ever had. I always felt like shit when I was bouncing. I mean, you, 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 but 
slept full eight to ten hours every single night. That's where you eat. Yeah, now, of course. I was eating my normal. I mean, what was the normal at the time, though? I mean, that sounds like that. Waffle House, I'd wake up, I'd eat like Chipotle, or chicken, beef, and then I would go train, I'd eat oatmeal, peanut butter and jelly before I went train, and then I'd drink. So decent. Yeah. That shit was miserable. I would not go back. Choose it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, the the bouncing was not it. And then I, but I didn't get to sleep all day. I Mm -hmm. got home, you know, around three, four o'clock, fall asleep, get up for class around 9 a.m. the next day. So that show was miserable to me. I was just like, God, please let it in. So I'm saying that was the fall last year when I didn't have a job I have now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I could sleep till two o'clock in the afternoon, wake up, go train at four, be done at four or nine. So how do you feel about people that, like, especially young people that come into the sport, and as soon as they start, they hop on show. They oh, hop on yeah. gear. Oh, Lord. <laughs> oh, like I said, I've been around a long time, so I've seen, I've seen that happen. I mean, there's a lot of people that, are, that were in the sport and at the top for a very short amount of time that are not around anymore. There's a lot of people who had kind of this, this shelf life of about a two-year peak where it was like it was all about them. They're just absolutely crushing everything, and you hear nothing about them anymore. And I like to use those names as examples when some of these young people come to me in. Because realistically, like if somebody comes to me and they ask me about it, I'm always going to say, no, you shouldn't do this, first and foremost. Then I always follow up with, but if you are going to go that route, I'm not an advocate for it, but find a credible source, find you know somebody to guide you in the direction that you need to go. So if you're going to do something which is stupid, be smart about it. That makes any sense whatsoever. But yeah, if you're going to be stupid about something, do it in the in the way that's going to be least detrimental to you long term. But no, I'm, I'm not a fan of, I don't, I'm not an advocate for really anybody at any point, you know, hopping on. You do what you want to do. I don't have a problem with it, but I'm not against it. Uh, I just, I'm not a big fan of having people do that really at any age, but that's just me. Yeah, yeah. It's, it seems like a lot with the culture nowadays with younger people, it's instant gratification. Yeah, like people don't want to. You know, it's it's about what what am I going to be doing next year? I want to be hitting these numbers next year. Where we really need to be looking at if you're a new athlete, what am I going to be doing in five to ten years from now? Because mm-hmm. that's where that's where the results are going to come, not just hopping on a bunch of steroids and you know. And I I kind of make the analogy. It's like skydiving. You wouldn't. Just instantly sign up to skydive, go out there by yourself and jump out of an airplane. You take a long time to kind of like learn about it, study it, get some some sort of experience. You know, the first time you go skydiving, you usually jump with somebody. It's a, you know, to lower the risk. But yeah, I think I think a lot of it has to do with just the mindset of young people nowadays. And yeah. the you know, instant gratification. I wanna be For big, sure. I wanna be strong. Mm-hmm. How can I get there the fastest? And not as much of, you know, what's this going to do to my health? Yeah. Or well, definitely not that. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think Ron's probably the perfect example of patience going from 165 mm-hmm. to 220 over 10 years. Yeah. Takes a lot of patience and a lot of just willpower, really. And I think we were talking about it earlier too with burnout. The yeah. fastest way to burn out is to hop on gear as soon as you start. Mm-hmm. You talk about like, not knowing how to maximize your recovery, not even knowing how to really train, mm-hmm. and just hopping on gear, probably the fastest way to a two-year burnout. Yeah, if you're, you if you're not perfectly checking all the boxes outside the gym, stress, sleep, nutrition, and then your training being on point. You really and truly have no business putting any hormones in your body. And I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit from what I just said not long ago about me not thinking it's cool for anybody to do that. I kind of take that back. I'll, I'll say more or less when... Once you're kind of in your, your peak years and you've kind of hit more of a, like a, I don't want to say a natural plateau, but once you kind of get to those, you know, maybe mid-30s, late-30s or whatnot, at that point, I don't really have a problem with it because then now your your natural levels are kind of maybe starting to come down a little bit, but you haven't become a man yet at 21, 22. Right. You know, your natural production isn't at its highest yet. So you're really and truly wasting the potential of the gear by starting it so soon. You haven't reached your natural, you know, peak to add on to that at that point. As an 18, 19, 20 year old male, your nuts are going crazy. You're you're like injecting so much testosterone in your bloodstream at that age, you just gotta like 
take advantage and like for lack of a better term milk all the gains <laughs> you can from what you have while you're young because it's you know it's better than any test you could inject yeah it's going to be way better than anything you could inject yeah. from probably from 17 16 to 25 25 mm-hmm. is when your brain yeah. fully develops anyways right. like if you're thinking about it before then you probably should just stop thinking about it anyways and then especially if you don't have like a family by then the risk is too high if you don't even have a family by 25 and you're single it's like it doesn't seem worth it to me maybe if you were already at the top if you're in the top five percent of lifters maybe it would be something you think about before that age but even still it's just so risky long term you're not really thinking about that but the powerlifting records are not really gonna last that long <laughs> it's not really worth it in that sense the talent pools abandoned now it's gonna be somebody you've never heard of from a shed or from somebody's basement the next couple of years coming out and just blasting anything yeah so. yeah imagine you're taking all that gear and then some dude from the middle of africa that lifts in the rain on concrete blocks comes in and just fucking blows the numbers out of the water it's like what was it what was the point and if your training isn't going well nothing which i think most people can relate to that but it's going to be it's going to be even worse if you're taking something and then it's probably some off-brand chinese pharmaceutical on top of that like oh man cooking in the bathtub you got it in a kfc bag sunday on your pickup day say that to say all this if you're going to do all of that stuff get blood work please know exactly how much of what you actually need if you're going to use it don't just start it just you know, I have to start it without, yeah. and, and the issue is people, not only do they start, but they start with the hardcore shit. Like, why don't you like, and I don't mm-hmm. want to say that there is a basic cycle, but there are basic starting points, basic introductory type compounds. <laughs> Here's your blood work. Run the most, lift the most. Yeah. Hey, speed run. Like a, someone we know, PR, heart attack. PR, PR, PR. Or worse. PR and rhabdo. Hey, I mean, you got rabbit, though. You weren't even taking anything. What's that say about you? I was working too hard. Yeah. Half natty, half sauce, as they say. Under-training, under-recovering. That's probably a lot of people's mistakes with powerlifting now is just under-recovering. A lot of people train, like, it really doesn't matter how you train as long as you put in some type of work. But if you aren't recovering at all, then no point. I was going to say, you know, just people's lifestyle days. it's, It's a lot different than it used to be. You know, you have to, you know, working, most people are going to school, most people are working, and you're lifting, trying to squeeze in, most people get subpar sleep, at best, myself included a lot of times, but uh, gotta get the basics right first. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta get sleep. Good sleep is very underrated. Good nutrition. If, you, yeah. if you're a male power lifter out there, you probably should go get checked for sleep apnea, mm-hmm. no matter what weight class you're in. No matter what size you are, it, you, you don't. I'm working on getting that CPAP in about two weeks. You your recovery would probably vastly improve if you just went and got checked for sleep apnea. Because whether you need a CPAP or not, you might have some mild sleep apnea, and that's probably why you're not recovering either. So if you're 275 plus, it's almost a guarantee. Yeah, look at us. Health information, nutrition advice. Last podcast. <laughs> We're good guys, you know. We usually do this with every guest. So, if you could sit down and hang out, lift, or just have a conversation with anyone in the fitness industry, powerlifting, bodybuilding, you know, data science area, anyone, who would it be and why? Past, past or present. You can do a couple if you need to. Narrative down is kind of hard to I feel like you mentioned one already. I was about to say that the obvious yeah. one, the one that I worked with Dan Green was the, the obvious one. Um, yeah. But I actually haven't had a chance to meet Ed Cohen in person. In person. Um, mm-hmm. Haven't had a chance to meet him or have conversations with him. I'd say besides that, like, so I've, I've had conversations with Stan Everton, who is also really big wealth of knowledge. So if, if I hadn't met him, he'd be near the top of the list. But I'd have to say probably Ed Cohn, just based on, you know, all the accolades that he racked up. Granted, a lot of his stuff was considered in gear at the time. The gear then is basically what Raw is now. Mm-hmm. And hell, the knee sleeves now are probably better than some of the knee wraps that he used at the time. 
But yeah, probably him. And the, the main thing I would want to ask him about is because a lot of people now don't know that back then there was a rising bar in powerlifting. So there wasn't a, a flight system where it was like uh, lowest lift to the heaviest lift and then back to the lowest. It was he followed himself pretty much at every meet that he did because he was by far the strongest guy at the meet. So he would take a deadlift and then like two minutes later, he had to follow himself because there's nobody else that was there to to compete with him. And he was also, I think, pulling on all power bars, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that's wild. But that's that's really the, the main thing is like, what was your, what was so special about your training that you were so well conditioned to total the weights that you total while following yourself pretty mm-hmm. much at every meet that you did? Like that, that thought process and that um level of physicality it's just it just blows my mind because i know if i take a heavy deadlift single i need 15 minutes bro yeah. like this two to four minute thing there's no way yeah so yeah that's that's definitely who i hope to at some point get a chance to chat with that's a good one that was a good one that is a good one <laughs> jim a new one it's the og goat right there it is the he's probably still good yeah i would say he's still right good till, currently you're right and me hack still hasn't surpassed your I'm going to get a lot of flack from a lot of these current lifters, these fanboys of Hack. Look, he's cool. And I met him. Cool guy. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the people that Don Hack were not really around to see the run that Yuri won. Yeah. Yuri was the unbeatable guy that Hack is now. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Um, yeah, probably the most technically proficient sumo deadlifter I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Open your tank. Yes. Okay. Well, that's he's talking about Yuri. I'm talking about Yuri, but yeah, that was a that was a couple turn. I I've seen uh, Blake LaHue lift at Worlds. He he did a training session in the back after Worlds, and uh, that was pretty incredible to yeah. watch him. He's very technically efficient, and if he's off, he was using a power or a Texas deadlift bar, and he had been training on a Kabuki bar because all the big meets were using Kabuki. And he was talking about how different it is. And especially at that level, when you're pulling 900 at 181, it makes a massive difference. And if he's off by a millimeter, things are wrong. Going bad. His training is wild. He was telling me he does literally singles and doubles, mm-hmm. and that's it. No back offs, no accessories. He just comes in and does a single double on the main list and he's out. Some of that I think is to be able to keep his weight down because he's he's yeah, a, a pretty true, stocky too. dude and I, if I'm not mistaken I think this upcoming meet that he's doing maybe his last one at 181 so I would assume it's probably kind of tough for him to make one yeah. like if he's doing accessories it's probably that much tougher to keep his keep his weight down. For so, sure. Which one is he doing? American? American bro. Yeah. So everybody. That's going to be a crazy meet. I think this is like a really Exciting time though, and powerlifting. Just like he said, this is our four breaking. Start breaking the four minute mile. 100%. Not only with like numbers, but also just with like production, and you know, like now the American Pro and all these big meets are kind of like a spectacle, mm-hmm. more of a spectacle than they've ever been. Yeah, it's more visible now than ever too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's live streams. Live streams it's um, you know, just the production that meets are getting better. So agreed. All right. Well, uh, Rama, we really appreciate you coming up and, and uh, spending some time with us today. We, we did a little lift at the gym before this. That was fun. We, it's really nice to talk with someone that has as much experience in the sport as you and the knowledge that you have, so we really appreciate it. Um, thanks a lot. And that is your Friday night at the Barbell. Thank you. Peace.